everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. I'm your host, Josh Rapoon. This is the fourth on the road episode, and we're here at Maui Preparatory Academy, and we're with Robert Landau, who is the head of school. Robert, welcome. Hey, thank you, Josh. Pleasure to be with you. So, Robert, let's start with um, the bio part, which I always like to do at the beginning of the podcast. Um, you spent roughly 40 years in schools, in various positions, but this position that you have at Maui Preparatory Academy is your first in an American school. So let's talk a little bit about the previous schools and the positions that you've held and some of the things that you've done at those schools. Well, being a baby boomer, I graduated from college in 1975 with a California State teaching credential and all of us wanted to be teachers. I told my mom that I was gonna go to Switzerland for a year. Yeah. And uh, after 22 years in Switzerland, I left with a shipping container, a wife and two children, <laughs> having arrived with one suitcase. And that's where I got my first teaching job and later became a principal and left Switzerland as a head of school and then started a journey around the world. Which school were you head of in Switzerland? Uh, when I got there, it was called the Commonwealth American School. And when I left with a, a new logo and a new uh, curriculum and a new focus, we were called the International School of Lausanne. And after Switzerland, how does the journey unfold after that? Wow. After Switzerland, uh, we moved to Indonesia during the Asian economic crisis. I did go back to California for, for one year and was uh, founder of the International School of Monterey in Monterey, California, uh, the first international charter school in the U.S., still there. Uh, then uh, we went back overseas to my dream job at the International School of Prague in the Czech Republic. Uh, then we moved to Beijing, China. Phnom Penh, Cambodia, Singapore at Singapore American School, and then arrived in Hawaii in 2015. So just to position our audio listeners uh, locally, nationally, and globally uh, on the timeline, when was the Asian economic crisis? That was 1997, 1998. And so by the time that you reached Cambodia and China, those were which years? So, uh, oh, I had the great fortune of uh, arriving in Beijing in 2008 for the Beijing Olympics mm. and got to see uh, China in all its splendor uh, with the bluest skies that I can remember in my three years living there. Right. So talk to us a little bit about your Cambodian experience, because I know that you and I in our many conversations together um, over the last few years um, have talked about that experience. So what was special about Cambodia? Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Josh. You know, when we talk about what school could be or who is most likely to succeed, mm -hmm. when somebody says to you, go out and find 50 kids living in the provinces of Cambodia, going to government schools with 65, 70 kids in a classroom, no fans, no air conditioning, a rote memory curriculum, find 50 kids, low economic but of high potential, bring them to a purpose-built school in Phnom Penh, design a 21st century uh, project-based uh, curriculum and program. Right. Uh, somebody says that to you, you do it. Right. And um, we screened over 12,000 students, uh, traveled over 4,000 kilometers to 61 government schools and found our first 50 kids. Uh, people said you'd have a dropout rate of 25 to 30 percent. Forty-nine of those original 50 kids are still at the school, some of them about to graduate next year. And what was it like for those kids in the first days and weeks and months of school? Like, what was school like to them? What was happening on the ground? 
Well, Josh, when somebody said go out and find these kids, uh, there was no matrix and no way to locate. How do you find kids who are non-English speakers who could uh, operate in a critical thinking, collaboration, creativity, 21st century skill environment in a project-based learning, expeditionary learning uh, school? How do you do that? Well, we had to invent it. We created it. Right. We had about a seven, eight-step process to find those 50. You know, I still get chicken skin when I think of the first student-led conference for parents in our first term, where we brought all of the parents from eight different provinces in Cambodia. Some traveled 12 hours on the back of a truck to get to the school. And their children were telling them about their learning, using their laptops, showing them what they did, and parents crying at what their kids were talking about. They'd never seen that before. None of the parents had ever graduated high school. What was the founding year of that school? Uh, 2011. 2011-12 is when we built and recruited the students. 2012, the school opened. And here it is, 2019. Yes. And how is that going? So these kids have uh, developed apps that have won world app contests. They have published books that you can buy on Amazon, they have started their own businesses through the entrepreneurship program. Uh, they have created English classes for local kids and run that as a business. Um, they have done things that you could only imagine that you do in, in schools today. And these were the least likely mm-hmm. to succeed. Okay. So we'll come back in a second to your arrival here at Maui Preparatory Academy in West Maui. But I want to Um, dig a little bit deeper into some things that we've talked about in the past about John Dewey and your affinity for for Dewey's philosophy of education, democracy, and education, um, and about project-based learning, about inquiry, about experiential education. So how the way I want to phrase the question is, how has PBL and inquiry and experiential education really been alive in your life? And I know that's a big question. It could be many podcasts, but here we are. I'll answer it as simply as I can, Josh. Uh, John Dewey died the year that I was born, 1952. Little did I know that within uh, a few years, as a second grader, my parents would transfer me from the local public school to a school on the UCLA campus, University of California, Los Angeles campus, at the time called the University Elementary School. My first principal was a man by the name of Dr. John Goodlad, mm-hmm. and my second principal, uh, Dr. Madeline Hunter. Going back into the, you know, the Yang Jows and the Ted Dintersmiths, those were the, the superstars of the day. Right. And uh, UCLA, uh, now called UCLA Lab School, was a project-based, experiential, Dewey-inspired um, lab school directly on the UCLA campus. And so when you think about John Dewey's three tenets of the process of learning, learn, do, act, as a second grader 60 years ago, that's what I was doing. As a student, it shaped my entire thinking around education, around what every school should be. Mm -hmm. I graduated University of California Lab School um, in sixth grade, went to public school, and thought I had gone to another planet. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand why school was like that, where I had a little report card, and I had to do subjects with different teachers, and I stayed in the classroom all day. Mm -hmm. I couldn't understand 
what my parents had done to me. Why couldn't the school have gone on to junior high and high school? I was so right. sad. Right, right. It seems like, Robert, that um, at times, for those of us who are super involved and interested in education, that we get caught up in a lot of jargon. So I just want to take a second to distinguish between, let's say, project-based learning or inquiry-based learning or experiential education. What are the what are the simple differences without getting too much into the weeds? Well, the simple differences are is, you know, if you think back to before we created this factory model of education, uh, kids were learning out uh, in the fields, on farms, uh, in the countryside. They had to learn to do things. And then when the storm came through and when the tornado was about to hit or the fire appeared or the flood came, kids had to react and apply what they learned in the real world in an unpredictable situation. It's what we today call relevance. And so for me, it's not about doing the projects. It's not about the the name. It's about getting kids to learn first, experience it, and then act upon and demonstrate that that learning has relevance and that they can get thrown blindsided different things and they can still react and use their critical thinking to do something profound. It's so funny because today um, I was at your house earlier today resting and then I took an Uber up here to your campus for this particular moment for a screening of Most Likely to Succeed a little bit later in the evening. I had the most extraordinary conversation with my Uber driver. He's actually a maintenance director at a resort that's just down the street from your house. And I started asking him questions about what the essential skills are of his job. And he talked about carpentry and he talked about plumbing and electrical and all of these different kinds of things. But really what he was talking about, and and he and I did talk about it, is critical problem solving. And he, he, he was very enthusiastic, like, yes critical problem solving because I think for him it's just like wow what's going to happen next and how do I navigate my way through that so talk to me a little bit about how through your experiences prior to Maui Preparatory that that kind of critical problem solving was at the heart of what you were doing as an educator as an administrator well first of all I hope you got his name because I'm looking for a facilities manager and he's got all the right skills I do have his name (laughs) I actually have it in my Uber app outstanding yeah that's a that's another four podcast series. Um, yeah, I know. And yeah. so I think I, I want to go back to maybe my first teaching job, right? And talk about how I figured this out as a teacher, having applied my experience at the lab school as a kid, and then arriving in a school that um, didn't have any textbooks or any curriculum whatsoever, and they just told me teach these kids. I had. 11 kids, 10 boys and a girl, teaching 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. And I had to teach science. And we were doing um, a project. And I filled balloons with um, hydrogen gas using zinc and and hydrochloric acid. You probably shouldn't have done that. Right. Uh, Putting zinc into a bottle, putting in hydrochloric acid, and then filling the, the bottle with gas, putting a balloon on top. And we attached a note to our balloon. And a scientist from Hofflem LaRoche Pharmaceutical Company found one of our balloons in the forest walking his dog, contacted us, I think by phone because there was no email. And all of our kids got to travel to Zurich and visit the pharmaceutical company. And it made me realize right then that 
we spend an enormous amount of time talking about what the solution is and the problem solving, the critical thinking. You know, what have I learned in my entire career as a teacher, as a principal, as an administrator? Just peel away the onion and just get the kids right. down in the mud doing the, the dirty work of learning, right. doing, and acting. Acting, right. Okay, so again, we're sort of putting off your arrival at Maui Preparatory Academy because of all these other questions I want to ask you. Robert, um, the United States and a lot of places around the world kind of went all in on testing. Um, when did that happen and why did it happen? Well, again, if you think about that in 1958, 59, I was going to this school in, at UCLA and we had no testing, no grades, um, parent-student conferences, right. and somehow that was okay. Right. And then I arrived in, in junior and senior high and they told me to show up at the gym with a number two pencils on a Saturday morning at 8 o'clock. So, again, I think we've heard this so many times before, Josh. You know, we were creating a, a factory model of education that needed a, a standardized output of, of what our kids were able to do and that both teachers and, and uh, schools had this enormous pressure around the teaching to the test and getting the, the points right. right. You know, I remember sitting in a classroom as a kid when Sputnik went up and, and we all freaked out yeah. around being ahead of trying to get ahead of the Russians. And uh, the politicians responded, I think, in a way that standardized, make all of our kids the same, because it seems like that's what they were doing over there, so maybe we should do it over here. Forgetting the very nature of that can-do pioneer spirit of, of the American agrarian society that created something out of nothing. In your estimation, is the United States, um, is it, is the curve of testing going up or has it already peaked and is it starting to come down? Well, you know, Josh, we keep looking at these international, the PISA scores, and we keep realizing that for some reason America is, is down 14th, 20th in some of those tests. And uh, <clears throat> we're trying to compete. And we think that we're going to compete by creating this more standardized approach. Uh, I was in China a couple of months ago I'm staying in a hotel next to a Chinese private school. And at 10 o'clock at night, I looked out at the school campus and every light was on in every classroom. It wasn't the cleaners the cleaning the classrooms for the next day. Students were in the classroom until 10 p.m. prepping for the national test. Right. Uh, and the teachers were there from 7 a.m. until 10 p.m. They only got one salary. There was no extra time, overtime. And so do we really think that's what we want for our students? Is that, the kind, is that what it's going to take to compete and get our country's uh, name up in number one through five on these international tests? That would break my heart, knowing what students are capable of doing when you let them follow their own passions and come up with their own solutions that can't be standardized, can't be placed on any test. When you have kids getting a patent you know, in ninth grade, or writing a one-act play in 10th grade, um, or developing a product or an, a, a business in 12th grade. That can't be standardized. That's not on a test. And I see kids doing that every day. Right. So I, I flew over from Oahu today to, to Maui to your campus because you're screening uh, Ted Dittersmith's film, Most Likely to Succeed. You screened it earlier today to students. Um, and I did the Q&A, and um, you're screening it tonight to parents, and I'm also doing some Q&A after that. So um, as a segue into that conversation, 
what what is your journey to Maui Preparatory Academy? How did you end up here? And I think it relates specifically to your previous response because I think what you're hinting at already is that this school is different. Well, um, partially true. Okay. Um, it's becoming different or it's becoming um, unique to us among those great schools out there that are on our similar journey. I never want to be the best school. I want to be among schools, among schools. like our school right. so that we can collaborate and create our own network, our own coalition. But uh, I arrived in Hawaii as the executive director of the Hawaii Association of Independent Schools. And I, I loved doing that work because that's when I met you. <laughs> among, Thank you. Among, among many, many other great people that are in this state doing this work. Right. But you and I and you know that group that you know who you are listening to this podcast, yeah. uh, we came together with this dream of bringing together public, private, and charter schools across the state to give every single child an opportunity to a, a future-focused education. Right. And um, I joined an organization, HIS, that was uh, already uh, rich and vibrant and, and organizing what's called the Schools of the Future Conference, developing a singular accreditation process. And I set out to visit every single school in our network of schools, and that was fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I remained at HIS for a variety of reasons for two years, and then I set out on my own as an independent consultant. And I got to name my consulting company. My, it took me 10 seconds, Josh, to come <laughs> up with the name. Right. And it's Two Roads Education, and I still run that, that consulting company. Two roads diverged in the wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, right. and that has made all the difference. Right. And that's been my journey as an educator and uh, the educators I've met here in Hawaii. We want to make sure our kids can take that road less traveled to make all the difference. But most importantly, like we did in Cambodia, to get our kids to invest in their home, in their aina, right. to come back to Hawaii and, and make this the greatest state in the U.S., or shall I say, among the greatest among states the greatest. in the U.S. Right, exactly. Uh, and so, uh, to make a long story <laughs> short, Maui Preparatory Academy was uh, one of my clients. I came here to help the school in some mission and vision and curriculum and governance work. As a consultant. As a consultant, and then I, I forgot don't get hired by your client. Right. So the school needed a, a new head of school. I said I would come in one year as an interim and I'd help them find their permanent head and that was last year. Right. Obviously, I'm still here and that's an interesting conversation in itself. Why am I still here? Right. Why would somebody decide to stay on from an interim position to a permanent position? Right. So tonight we're screening most likely to succeed to some of your parents. Um, most likely to succeed for our listeners out there does two things. It spends the first 20 minutes roughly uh, talking about how the world is changing at hyperspeed and how the nature of jobs is changing and um, a lot of statistics and data analysis around jobs reports and the way the economy is working. And then it focuses on a school in San Diego or a charter school, which is now, what, 14 or 15 of them? 14 campuses. Um, th that's called High Tech High. So... Um, whether our listeners have seen the film or not, and they can certainly watch it, they can go to iTunes or, or Amazon Prime to see it, what does most likely to succeed the film bring to the education conversation locally, nationally, globally? Well, you know, it, it, the reason we're showing it tonight is because we're on that journey that many schools are on. 
how do you move from a 20th century preparatory school to a 21st century and almost 220 um, and prepare our kids for their future and not our past. The right. John Dewey, you know, talks about if we teach our kids the way we did in the past, we rob them of, of their future. Right. So um, we're showing the film, um, you know, that was already made in 2015, now in 2019. But what it does is it, um, it creates a lot of uh, provocative commentary around parents who want school to look like it did for them for their children. And I find that's often the, the hard sell is that a lot of parents love sending their kids to school and love the work that comes home and loves right. the books and the subjects and, and the homework. So the, the, show, the film, yeah. the, there's a port, there's a part of the film where, where the narrator says that parents are being asked to make a bet. What is that bet? Well, they also say something as well, Josh, and that is, we don't know that changing our school is going to make things worse for our kids. Right. And so the bet is, is what we're doing to sc in schools like Maui Preparatory Academy and others. I just say to our parents, I guarantee you it's going to be equal or better than what we have. Right. It's not going to be worse. Mm. And so that's the bet that parents make around, do they trust the school that's making these changes while their children are still in the school that's being changed. Right. When I've screened the film and when we've screened the film together, we've found that sometimes the best conversations that the film generates come from questions that are coming from the audience. In other words, asking them to have these questions on their mind as they go through the film. What are the important and essential questions that the film raises? And then we get a chance to discuss that after the film rather than having somebody just talk about the film. What are the questions that the film really bubbles up to the surface? Well, um, if you think about the questions that our students were asking today, yeah. uh, it came from two different perspectives. We had the students that asked the predictable questions. How are you going to change the school and get me into college? Because the colleges want what we have, not what you're talking about. Right. Then the second child who's sitting there going, you're speaking to me. I am that expeditionary learner. I am that independent thinker. I am that student that stares out the window when I'm learning pre-calculus, but become engaged when you tell me I can become an active learner. Right. So you're speaking to those two audiences every time you're speaking, uh, showing the film to students. Parents, of yeah. course, some of them will say it's about time. I endured the school that you're talked about to change. And thank goodness you're making it different for my child. And then there's the parent that's frightened for their children right. that they're not going to get into the college because we haven't given them the courses and the tests and the preparation. Right, right. So uh, because time is short, Robert, oh my God, this is going by so fast. Um, my father used to talk about um, there are two kinds of BS. Um, there's the literal BS that comes out of the, the cows behind um, and then, because he was a Harvard guy, he talked about Harvard BS, which is the other kind, right? So let's cut through the Harvard kind of BS here, and let's talk about renovation. So today, um, we've had several conversations about what it actually looks and sounds and feels like when your school is under renovation. So tell me about that. And we had that conversation, didn't we? Um, we always talk about that analogy of tinkering with the engine on the plane while it's in the air. Right. You know what? I don't buy that anymore. You know why? 
That's really dangerous. It is. Yes. So I wouldn't do that. I, I also don't agree with get on the bus, we're pulling out of the station, and we're leaving you behind. Mm, right. So, you know, that's kind of a glass half empty approach. First of all, it's unsafe yeah. and it's not strategic. Yeah. On the other hand, I always talk about that third grader who's listening to this podcast and all these conversations and saying, so you have a better way of teaching me. You have a better way of, of organizing my school, but you're telling me I have to wait until you think it's okay right. to do this with me yeah. or till the district agrees or the school agrees or the parents agrees. I'm getting myself a litigation lawyer and I'm suing you because for malpractice because you say you can teach me better, just like you could cure me better if you were a doctor. Right. So I like the analogy of renovation. Okay. The fact that, uh, and I did this to my house on Oahu, we lived in the house while there was dust and dirt yep. and debris um, all around us, yeah. but we had a plan, and that plan was going to mean that when our house was finished, it was going to be a better house than it was be before. Right. And so that's what we're doing at our school. We're renovating, but we have a very tight timeline. We have a three-year timeline from the beginning of the planning to the moving into our new house that's been okay. renovated. Can you give me a specific example from any grade of a specific renovation that's underway? Well, um, we're renovating the whole school. So the, right. the, the most uh, singular renovation that, that we created was what we're calling Impact Wednesdays. Okay. And so it's kind of that Google 20% time. Yes. So we thought, well, we're going to take one day out of the week and make that different, special, mm -hmm. unique. And so we created Impact Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, we do school differently. And uh, we've created three strands. Strand one is social-emotional learning. Strand two is stewardship and global issues. And strand three is the passion project internship phase of the journey for our kids. Right. That's a major yeah. shift in our, our thinking. And we did it one year before we were told it was safe to move back in the house. Right. I did a podcast episode earlier in this season with Melissa Speegens, who's the principal at Waimea Canyon Middle School. She's also doing, it's not Impact Wednesdays, it's actually 20% time that's stacked onto every day. Mm -hmm. And the kids are self-selecting into thematic rooms like you know peace and social justice or life underwater or environmental, these sorts of things. So it sounds like there's some similarities there. There is, except when you take an entire day, yeah. um, it gives you, and, and we're trying to do interdisciplinary work. Right. So it's, it's that relevance thing we talked about earlier, where we take what we learn in the real world in unpredictable situations. Today we had kids out um, learning everything about net fishing, um, and they needed the whole day to do it because right. they had to learn everything about it. They had to learn about the fishing itself. They caught the fish, cleaned the fish, cooked the fish, and they learned a whole lot of other things along with it. And you can't do that in 20% in of a day. So we've decided to devote the entire, the entire day. day. And then we're starting to infuse other things into the other four days in elementary school and in middle school. Do you notice that there's a spillover in the, in the other four days of the week where faculty, students, maybe even parents are thinking, you know, I really like Impact Wednesdays. I don't really want to go back to the other days. Have you seen that? Um, 
Not yet entirely because it's still new and the, the jury's not uh, out, but I know from another school that I worked with in China that um, where students could self-select to be in the 20% time, which actually became a full project-based learning academy, right. that they doubled the size of that program every year because yeah. word got out right. that actually the kids' test scores, if we got to go to that, yeah. were 10% higher being in this uh, unconventional part of the school. And so what's happening here is our science teacher, rather than talking about coral reefs in class, are taking a, an extended period to go to the coral reef. We've created something called Mission Block in okay. our middle school. So they have Impact Wednesday, but now they have these new elective courses that are being created by the students and the teachers. So it's just starting to seep out into the entire school. So this seems like a perfect moment to do a quick segue to your mission and vision. And we'll come back to the next question in a second, which is really important. Okay. Talk to us about your mission and vision and your philosophy of, of, um, of clarity and being concise when it comes to the mission and vision. Well, the first thing that we needed to do in our renovation was to look at the, the words on the page that gave us our marching orders, which is our mission. Right. And then look at the words on the page that told us what this supposed North Star was, where we're headed to, or the kind of kids we want to create, um, which is called our vision. And I have done so much accreditation, consulting, and school visits that I know that those paragraphs, yeah. nobody knows what yeah. they are. And when I came to this school, I asked everybody what the mission was, and no one could tell me. They could paraphrase it. Right. So I'm a big believer in what's called the three plus three. Okay. A three-word mission and a three-word vision. Okay. Uh, at the Western Academy of Beijing, where I was head of school, it was connect, in challenge, inspire, uh, connect, inspire, challenge, okay. make a difference. Okay. Connect, inspire, challenge was the mission. Our vision was to make a, make difference. a difference. So, of course, I was going to try for a three-worder yeah. here, and we actually economized, and we only have three words. Okay. We have a three-word mission, which is our three-word vision. And those three words are? Relationships. Okay. Empowerment. Right. Relevance. Okay. And what do they mean? So relationships to us means the social, emotional health and welfare of our individual children, our community, and our environment. It also means that every student is known, mm. supported, and successful. Right. Every adult is known, supported, and successful. So that's what we mean by relationships. Empowerment is this idea of agency, right. where our teachers have to give up and give to the students so the students can start to be empowered, not just to be the recipients of learner learning, but the owners of their learning. Okay. And so they can be empowered, to feel empowered, to go out and do great things not just in school, but in their life. Right. And finally, relevance is this idea of taking all of your learning out into the real world right. in unpredictable situations. Mm -hmm. That is uh, what we try to do now at school every day, but then that's, of course, the world that our kids are going to. So they always talk about the disconnect between the world outside of school and school. We want to blur those lines and blend that thinking. You and I got to witness a fascinating discussion today, and I think it was third or fourth grade around facts and opinions. Yeah, and I'd love actually what, it was first and second grade. First and second <laughs> grade. So the kids were actually 
going through a very hyperkinetic kind of exercise in which they were determining whether a statement was a fact or opinion. And that was, um, it felt to me like that was relevance coming in from the outside world into the classroom and that these kids, hopefully in their profile of, their, of, of them as a graduate, that they can discern between fact and opinion. And that's, a, that's our civil society depends on that. Well, when you think of having just a three-word mission and vision, it gives you volumes and volumes to talk about. Yeah. Because every moment of the day, you must associate to your mission and vision. Right. And so what we were seeing there was the fact that uh, they were empowering the students to have their own opinion, and then they were making it relevant because the, it was a question about a real situation. Right. Um, I'd just like to add that we had to take our mission and vision and then translate that into a new curriculum framework right. that gives us the, the legs, as it were, to, to bring that uh, mission and vision into the learning uh, and uh, teaching and learning inside the school. And that's not an easy process to go through. It's not, but you know, uh, we think now of curriculum as three different levels. First is the single subject learning, right. essential learning, then the interdisciplinary learning right. that combines the subjects, but then we have this real world uh, objective and we've, we're looking at four quadrants, uh, culture and identity, okay. relationships, see how the relationships yep. moved from the mission to the curriculum, Correct. and then stewardship and global issues because right. we want our kids to have a planet and an environment and the social emotional health that they can go to in their future. Right. And then lastly is what we call ingenuity and entrepreneurship. Because when they say 50% of the jobs that our kids are going to have haven't been created, well, let's let our kids create those jobs by being entrepreneurial. Right. So, Robert, we're, we're again coming down to the end of our time, but it feels like we keep extending it. You and I have had many conversations, too many to count, um, around the concept of coaching. And I know it's something very near and dear to your heart. Um, so let's, talking about, let's talk about coaching and about its role in education. So why is it so near and dear to your heart? It's near and dear to my heart because I'm going to give you a quick segue story to when I was in Prague coaching middle school, school girls softball. Okay. And I was recruiting my players because softball wasn't the most popular sport in the school. And I noticed these four Czech girls had not made the volleyball team, all four of them, and they were all friends. Right. But they looked like great athletes. They just weren't great volleyball players. Mm -hmm. So I got them all to my side and I said, why don't you come and join the softball team? They said, we don't know what softball is. We're Czech. Uh, long story short, we won the championship that year okay. on the backs of those four girls. Okay. And it wasn't because they knew the answers. It's because they were coachable. And I coached the heck out of those four girls. Right. And it made me realize that... Um, Teacher evaluation um, is something that we do to teachers, and coaching is something we do for teachers. Okay. And so I started to think about teachers as coaches, right. and for me as an administrator, as their coach, and then they are the student's coach. Think of that math class as your team, right. and rather than uh, you can't you can't expect your whole team to perform on the field the same way at the same time. You've got to go in there and you've got to individually coach those players so they can perform better as a team. If you can raise the performance of each player, you're going to, you're going to improve the results of your team. And so I have found now that 
my teachers come to me for coaching. Okay. They certainly don't seek out evaluation. Right. They come off their own motivation and inspiration and say, what can I do to do this that you're talking about? And will you coach me? And will you come in and see how I'm performing on the field, knowing that it's the first game of the season and that I've got a lot of games to play this, this semester? And so I keep coming back at their bequest and they keep showing off their new skills and they're proud of it. And that's what you saw in first and second grade today. Yeah, you absolutely. saw two teachers that wanted to be coached. They were coachable and they want me to come in and stand on the sideline, root for them, mm -hmm. and then come in like I did after school today to that lead teacher right. and say, wow, that was a great game you played in there with your team. Right. Robert, I remember with complete clarity a moment when I was teaching at a private school on Oahu and it was the end of the year and my AP scores were coming in and I remember sitting on the bench outside the principal's office holding the envelope in my hand and my hands were shaking because I was about to find out whether my students had you know mostly scored fours or fives or threes and I just remember that there was something very wrong about that moment. And I knew that I was going to be evaluated almost exclusively on that score um, so, or on those scores. So what, what do you say to that teacher, that me sitting there five years ago on that bench? Well, the thing is that um, if you're sitting on the bench uh, kind of sad about what may be your performance, yeah. um, a good coach sits down with their player yeah. And, uh, and starts that very, very um, important conversation between the two of you right. um, around um, it's okay. Is it around why those scores are so important to the institution and there, therefore to me? Um, or is no, because else? ultimately your player's performance is about um, self-esteem. Mm. It's about intrinsic motivation. Right. It's about their feeling of self-worth. And uh, if you believe that you're going to be judged on your students' scores, then we've, we've lost the game. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm much more concerned at the end of the day with social-emotional learning. Right. And that's the social-emotional learning of everybody right. uh, in the building. But it works both ways. You know, we're a team. I had a different experience at a different school where um, the scores actually mattered absolutely not at all. And what really mattered to me and my students, because we were pushing the envelope in those classrooms mostly APUS and AP Euro, um, the, the envelope that we were pushing was building community together in the classroom and project-based, inquiry-based, experiential education. For me, the metric of success there is that I'm still in touch with all those students and they want to be in touch with me and they're telling me what they're doing and they're succeeding in some really marvelous ways, which is very, very cool. Well, I also know, and coaches know this, I met up with a couple of my softball players a few years ago in Prague and both of those kids had a lot of trouble in school. And in fact, one of my, my pitcher, uh, a lot of the teachers wanted her exited from the school. And we had lunch together all these years later. And they said, you know, Mr. Landau, it was all about the coaching. You gave us the self-esteem and the motivation. And it's not about me. There's such great coaches out there. Right. And so I would say, Josh, that when we talk about empowerment, we want to empower our school leaders to take risks in their schools. Um, I think those principals need coaching. Yeah. They don't need to be told they're empowered. They don't need to be given a mandate or permission. Okay. Because I've met a lot of principals who say, you know, 
how do I do what you're asking me to do? Right. Well, coaching. Coaching, right. So I'm just looking at my watch here, and, and I think we have just enough time for one more question. Okay. Um, so we did a screening this morning. You actually did it over two days of screening, most likely it's to uh, succeed to your student body. And I had the privilege of doing the Q&A afterwards. And so we set it up by having them talk to each other in pairs over a minute to come up with the essential questions of the film. And there was one kid, um, we can't name him, so we're just going to call him Joe, um, who was extremely interesting and worthy of a comment on your point. So what was it about Joe that was so interesting in that moment? Well, Joe is a kid who um, has a, a physical challenge in one of his um, arms. And um, so in many schools, he might be the one that is the, the, the sideline kid who doesn't get involved. Right. Um, this particular kid, when you think about intrinsic motivation and character and grit and perseverance um, he knows how to do school and he does school extremely well he is a straight A student um, he scores fours and fives on his APs um, and you would think it might stop there right. but he's also in swimming he swims the 500 yard swim he does Xterra games he does cross country um, and he does golf uh, but he's also in our band, right. he's in our play, and he's now uh, one of the, he's the treasurer of our Global Issues Network Conference uh, Committee. Right. And so and, and he his, asked the question. Yeah. His, his, his grades are? His grades are perfect. Okay. He won't, he told me, uh, they did the SAT yesterday, he told me this morning at band practice, um, Mr. Landau, I think I got an 800 on the math. Right. Confident. Okay. So what makes Joe most likely to succeed? Uh, because he has absolute passion already. He knows what he wants to do. I think he wants to get the Nobel Prize in physics. Okay. He has problems that he wants to solve, right. equations that he wants to, to, to know the answer to. And it's already his life quest, and he said that, that this is what drives him because he's so inquisitive around... These, these subject areas that he's discovered. Right. But he's also the first person to ask a provocative question in front of everyone. He did it when I, we had our last guest speaker. Yeah. Um, and uh, when you talk to him personally, you'll go, like, where did that come from, Joe? And he goes, I just, you know, this is the way I see the world. Yeah. I think that's why he really jumped out at me because that happens to me as well. These questions seem to come out of some strange place inside and I, I felt a great affinity in that moment oh you saw the that. Josh in the audience yeah absolutely. <laughs> I did I did yes um, Robert last question why is it so important that public private and charter educators and education leaders talk to each other in a, in a given context in a state or in a district well to be honest Josh our kids all have that same brain in their head yeah and by the very nature of decisions normally that parents make as to where to place their kids, um, students deserve an equal right and opportunity uh, to an, a great education. And so it's not about, you know, I always said when I was head of HIS, if we closed all the private schools in any state, uh, I'm not sure how the public system would uh, react to those number of kids um, flooding the public schools. Right. And so this has been around for a long time, the fact that, and then introducing charter schools. So it is what it is. Right. But the important thing is, is that our kids deserve 
equal opportunity to great education. And because of this um, spirit of aloha in our state, the true spirit of aloha and the idea of family, of ohana, um, we have this opportunity to collaborate and to be in each other's schools and to share and to grow together. But here's for me what we do need to do. We need to make sure the schools that want to, you know, run ahead, uh, public, private, and charter, have an opportunity to share with each other and then invite people to come in and observe uh, what we're doing in that kind of true laboratory sense. But I am absolutely, I have visited uh, public schools and I've been to the Teacher Leader Institute uh, through the DOE and what teachers in the public schools are are willing to take the risk to try within their own school, and it just blows me away. Yeah. We have this opportunity, and um, my school is an open door. We're building a new community center here that's open to the community, and uh, I hope that uh, we can all welcome each other uh, into our homes and share what we're doing for our all of our kids. Robert Landau, head of school at Maui Preparatory Academy, thank you so much for this conversation today. Always a pleasure, Josh.